Welcome back, everyone, to Love's Labour's Watch, your favourite um, pop culture podcast. Um, if anybody who is new or hasn't listened to us before, hello, I'm Helena. And I'm Francesca. And we are two 20-whatevers uh, living in London who have been doing this podcast now for, I think, more than two years. And we decided to discuss pop culture, books, uh, theatre, films, um, mostly, you know, to do with current issues or uh, women-focused stuff, and we do interviews with people as well. Um, and we just love to chat about things. It's really the the main crux of the show, do you think? As Helena said, we always have a lot of different interviews in the pipeline, and this week we have a really exciting interviewee. Yes. Um, so we were lucky enough to speak to the author Britt Bennett, whose most recent book, The Vanishing Half, has shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, and is also being talked about across the world, including in the UK, where we're based. Um, Britt was born and raised in Southern California. She graduated from Stanford. She later earned her MFA in fiction at the University of Michigan. Um, She's also known for her debut novel, The Mothers, which came out a couple of years ago and was also a New York Times bestseller. Mm. Um, She's also written a lot of great journalistic essays for Jezebel, The New Yorker, um, so yeah, it was really exciting to connect with Brit and speak to her about The Vanishing Half, which Helen and I both really loved and mm. really enjoyed um, getting into with Brit. Yeah, and Brit gave us a really good synopsis, spoiler free, um, of um, The Vanishing Half, um, which I won't, um, what's the word, I, I won't uh, try and recreate, but I'll just say before we get started, so The Vanishing Half, anyone who doesn't know, is about two sisters who grow up in a small um, small town in Louisiana, which is unique in that it is populated by people with um, black heritage who look pale, who are light-skinned because of how they have married lights, other light-skinned people and then progressively become lighter and lighter through the generation. So it's about this sort of um, mixed identity that these people have. And it's based around uh, a pair of twins and the way their lives diverge as they grew up in the town and then go on with their lives. Um, Brick gives a bigger introduction, but uh, just a small one there. That's kind of what we're looking at. So, um, yeah, and just to say, we try and keep our interviews spoiler-free as possible, but of course, some elements of the book will be revealed. So if you really are keen to not know anything about the book um, before you read it, then read it and come back to this episode and then listen to Brit talk about it. It's I'd really recommend the book and the interview because... Brit's insight is better than anything we could possibly say I think about the book so yeah that's my take on that (laughs) yeah absolutely um as you say it was great to speak to her and and the book is a kind of becomes a sort of generational family saga of sorts yeah I think it's really great to actually go into it without knowing too much about um the different generations of the family but let's 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 get into the interview um and then we will check back in again after for some more discussion yeah Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Britt. Um, we both loved the book and we're really excited to talk to you about it. Uh, we wondered if, first of all, you wouldn't mind giving a bit of an overview of the plot um, for those listeners who've yet to read the book. Um, and if you could also touch a bit on what inspired you to write the novel, that would be fantastic. Sure. Well, thank you for having me first. 
Um, so The Vanishing Half is a story about Desiree and Stella, who are identical twin sisters. And they grew up in this town that's very obsessed with skin color. Mm. But as they get older, they end up uh, deciding to kind of go in very different life paths. One marries a dark-skinned man and returns to the town with her child. And the other one decides to pass for a white woman. Um, the story actually came from a conversation I had with my mother a few years ago where she was telling me about a Louisiana town that she kind of remembered hearing about when she was a child there, um, where everyone in the community kind of intermarried so that their children would get progressively lighter and lighter skinned. Um, so it was so strange. It was nothing that, it was like nothing I'd ever heard. Um, and it was really striking and disturbing and memorable. And I started to think about the idea of setting a novel in a place like that. And thinking about what it meant to live in that place, but also what it meant to leave that place behind. Yeah, and I think I think definitely that's something that's really interesting. I mean, a town like Mallard, you wouldn't expect it uh, to exist. So it's really interesting to find that it it did. And did you have to do any like um, research or kind of any work to try and put this pull this town together? Particularly since it might have been some, not a myth, but you know, not really exist in any particular history books. Yeah, well, it's so it's it felt very mythical to me because it was filtered down through something that my mom like remembered hearing, you know, there were so many degrees yeah. of, yeah. of separation. Um, so I, I did research on, on similar communities. Um, you know, there were some uh, different sort of small Creole communities in Louisiana that were uh, a lot of uh, light skinned Creole people living there. Um, I don't know if it was, if the sort of borders were enforced mm. in the way that this was in my mind, hearing my mom talk about it and, and thinking about a town kind of instituting this, uh, this skin preference and, and almost like genetically engineering it yeah. in a way. So yeah. I don't, I don't know that those towns operated in that way. Um, but you know, there is a history in Louisiana of these very fair skin Creole communities that, that are invested in um, kind of maintaining light skin and, and, in their uh within their community yeah yeah it's, it's really interesting and, and you mentioned earlier about how um the two main characters in the book Desiree and Stella are sisters they're twins um and their, their lives take their, their lives diverge from one another but we wondered um why did you choose twins as your main characters yeah the twins arrived pretty early you know I, I started thinking about this town first and then you know that's not really enough for a novel you need the people that yeah. live in the town first yeah. um so so then when i started thinking about that the idea of, of twins felt like a natural way to think about identity um to kind of think about these questions of nature versus nurture and personality and genetics and all of these things in a, in a kind of fun way um so i started to think of these twins being um inseparable as girls growing up in this almost like claustrophobically close relationship that they both kind of want to escape, but also don't feel that they're capable of really being on their own. Um, and then thinking about the idea of these twins living their adult lives in these very dramatically different directions. Yeah. yeah. And, and certainly I suppose it, it can seem quite dramatic, particularly for, um, you know, those of us, admittedly, I wouldn't say I'd really ever heard of passing or passing over before. Um, and as you know, Desiree goes off and, and marries a, a dark-skinned man, and then comes back. But yeah, as you mentioned, um, Stella goes off and assimilates into a white community. Um, and kind of for anyone who's like unaware, kind of like I was, um, can you kind of explain like passing and passing over, kind of what it refers to, and kind of how it's been thought, I guess, in like the kind of the modern mindset? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a. Um, um... I mean, I don't know that I would say it's a common uh, narrative, but mm. it is. There is kind of a genre of passing literature, I think, within American literature. Yeah. 
Um, you know, these are stories that are most, most often about, uh, you know, fair skinned black people who, uh, assume a life or assume a, an identity as a white person. Um, and, you know, most of these stories were, were written much earlier in time than when my book is set. Most of them are kind of, you know, early 20th century or maybe, you know, 20s, 30s kind of in there. So mm. uh, there are books like Nell Larson's Passing. Um, there's something like uh, books or movies like Imitation of Life. Um, that was a, a film that I saw when I was pretty young. And I think that was the first story I was really uh, exposed to about passing. Mm. Um, but, you know, they always... I was always kind of interested in, in passing stories because I think that they're inherently really contradictory. Um, mm. The idea of somebody passing, you know, if you can pass from black to white, if you can perform race convincingly, then what actually is race? You know, yeah. <laughs> like if it's something that you can act as, if, if Stella can walk into this room and assume a white identity because she has said that she is white, uh, then what does it mean that we have all of these hierarchies within our cultures and within our society and our politics, all these these racial hierarchies that actually have material effects on people's lives? Yeah. Um, when at the same time, you know, those categories themselves can be transgressed or they can be moved between. Yeah. Mm. And in the book, um, as children, Desiree and Stella are actively told to avoid darker skinned people and the town prides itself on each generation becoming lighter skinned um how would you say that this the fictional or mythical town of mallard um reflects this greater issue of colorism in the real world and you know it's something as you say that is um prevalent or is something that is is frequently discussed in in our real society so yeah we wondered how you approach that theme and and what um attracted you to that theme yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, I wanted to use Mallard as a, as a uh, and really a lot of the elements of this story to kind of push the themes to their extreme ends. Mm. Um, so by locating this concept of colorism, which, as you were saying, is so expansive, it's, it's something that um, occurs across cultures, you know, it's not just black cultures, it's uh, within different Asian cultures, it's, you know, all over uh, all of the world, different uh, countries, different, uh, you know, ethnic groups, uh, you know, this idea that it's better to be lighter than it is to be darker. That's mm. a really pervasive idea. Um, so I wanted to to kind of locate that in this place. And again, think about how it's almost instituted and how when these twins are young, they're taught, you know, you have to wear a hat if you're going to go outside, you have to avoid the sun, mm. you can't get darker. Um, how they're kind of taught that from a young age and and, you know, beyond, you know, told that they shouldn't be darker, but also told that they shouldn't marry somebody who's dark because, you know, he'll just take advantage of you or yeah. these other, you know, really horrible stereotypes. Um, so I kind of wanted to push that, that, that take that concept and really push it to all of its extremes by locating it in this place and thinking about what it means uh, for both the twins to grow up in this place as these light-skinned girls who meet the standard of beauty and the standard of acceptance but also thinking about uh, Desiree's daughter, Jude, who is darker skin and very much does not meet um, any of the standards and values within this community. So she's also forced to, to operate within uh, within these rules that intentionally exclude her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I certainly felt that, you know, the issues in Mallard are issues that are felt much more widely in communities. And Mallard is just kind of one place. Um, 
And equally, I think another thing that I, I really noted, and I think some other people have noted too, without kind of giving too much away about the storyline <laughs> itself, um, Stella's journey for me and for others I've kind of read reviewing your book is quite remarkable and surprising. You know, perhaps not, not to devalue Desiree, but perhaps more so than Desiree because of this passing over and the fact that kind of throughout her journey in the book, as her daughter notes, you know, she never stops lying and she can't not lie about it. And it becomes almost part of her. Um, Kind of, was this a key part of Stella's particular character for you? You know, this conscious ignoring, was it something you wanted to do with her? Yeah, you know, I, I kept thinking about, you know, what does it mean to act for so long that the performance becomes real? Mm. Um, and weirdly enough, one of the one of the books that I was reading that, that gave me kind of a mental framework for thinking about passing in a new way was this book I read about uh, faking your death. Ah. And... <laughs> And it was, it, it's a, it was a really fun book. And, you know, she talks about like the woman who writes the book is at like trying to see if she can actually do it and fool this guy who's um, an investigator. And he's telling her like all the things that she's doing wrong in order to kind of fake her death yeah. and hide her, cover her tracks. So it's fun in that way. Mm-hmm. But there, there are a lot of elements of the books where they talk about people who have faked their death for years and years and years. And when they are approached like later, um, they're just like insisting like that, you know, whoever that they used to be, no, that was never me. I have always been this person. Yeah. Um, and like, even once they are confronted with all the evidence of like their deception and their fraud, they just refuse to admit that that was once them. And I, mm. and to me, like death faking was a really interesting way to think about passing because that's essentially, I mean, it's kind of what Stella does like emotionally, you know, she, yeah. she has sort of, you know, erased her past. She refuses to talk about her past, even to her, husband and to her child and people really close to her um she has no connection to her family anymore like nobody knows where she is she's truly just started a new life and a new identity for herself so thinking about it in that way and thinking about how she would still be so committed to this performance even after she uh you know has moments where um where the performance is threatened in some way i'll say i'm trying to be very vague (laughs) (laughs) um you know but when the performance is even threatened she doubles down and triples down on it Um, so Mm -hmm. that that kind of framework for it became i think really helpful for me of thinking about stella's mindset and you know i think for stella it's never i don't think that's really that she is obsessed with whiteness or she's fascinated with whiteness or she thinks that whiteness is better i think she really just wants a new life she wants a different life than the one that she's been given and she's kind of willing to do whatever it takes to get that that fresh start yeah absolutely yeah i thought it was really telling when she you know she describes her family she tells people her family are dead which Mm -hmm. you know obviously they're not it's like it's just for her they're dead to her because she's as you say completely divorced herself from her history and heritage um but we also wanted to ask you about the language in the book um much of the descriptions of the characters um does revolve around their coloring and descriptions of of people's appearances and we wondered how you you navigated those at times potentially loaded visual descriptions and how you hoped the reader might react Mm. to you know terms like at one point um Desiree and Stella are described as diluted with cream for example um yeah we <laughs> yeah. wanted if you could speak a bit on that yeah I mean I, I don't know I think it's it's often it, it was it was something that I I think I wanted to to um play with consciously you know mm. I have I remember I used to have a conversation with one of my mentors 
when I was in graduate school about uh, how often uh, people of color are described to uh, compared to food. Yeah, our, our yeah. skin colors are described. Um, and you know, so there, so there are aspects like that that I I hate when I see in fiction. Uh, but at the same time, I also kind of wanted to play with some of those those images and again like I said pushing all of it to its its extremes yeah. sort of even at the right. even at the language register um so there's you know there are a lot of of sections of the book I, I you know I, I I often don't think about other people reading it as I'm writing it maybe that's bad um, <laughs> but you know like there there's a whole section of the book where Jude is you're kind of taken through all of these horrible slurs that she's been called or these horrible mm-hmm. ways that she's been yeah been called and you know and I think that that you know that's that's a section that also might be tough for some people to read um but but again for me it's you know I wanted to look directly at not only the idea of of colorism as something that is institutionalized and something that is has you know implications on a large scale um, but also something that you that you feel you know it's something that you're experiencing in this really intimate way because it connects Mm -hmm. to how you feel about being in your own body and that's that's kind of as intimate as it gets yeah yeah absolutely to move kind of on to more of the the structure and of the novel and it kind of progresses from yeah the twins Desiree and Stella and how similar they are in their stories um, to Jude and Kennedy, their daughters, who are actually very markedly differently different from one another mm-hmm. in their upbringing and actually in their skin color, and um, kind of why did you choose to move the story on, and then the out the outcome and impacts of Desiree and Stella's um, decisions onto the next generation? Like, what kind of pushed you to do that? Yeah, that was that was not what I originally planned to do. Um, I really thought the book would just be about the twins and their lives. And then I started to think about Jude, who, you know, she's the character who arrives with her mother, Desiree, on the opening page of the book. So from the very beginning, she's kind of at the forefront of your mind as you're reading it. Um, And of course, I'm thinking about what her experience would be like growing up in this place. It would be very different than her mother's experience Mm. and and different than anybody else in the family's experience. So that that became interesting to me. Um, And I think Kennedy was really the one who kind of like crept up on me because, um, you know, I always, I think at first it was very easy to kind of dismiss her as just like some spoiled brat. And, you know, she's like the rich girl who, um, is raised completely obliviously to her mother's past. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it was easy to kind of dismiss her. Um, but I, 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 again, I started to think about how the relationship she would have with her mother would be so completely strained because, her mother has to keep her at at an arm's length, you know, she can never truly be honest with her own daughter. And Kennedy feels that distance. She's always Mm -hmm. felt that distance between herself and her mother. And she has no way to understand it. You know, she has no context for understanding why her relationship with her mother is the way it is. And that became actually really moving to me. Um, So I wanted to think about not just the twins and their lives, but also how their choices trickle down to the lives of their daughters um, and, and yeah, how, how we inherit these, these histories from our parents that we, that we may actually never understand. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as a result, you know, the book has multiple protagonists and the book tells the story through each of their eyes via your close third person narrator. So what was it like embodying these very different characters who have quite different worldviews and perspectives on events? Yeah, it was fun. Um, mm. You know, I think I, I think there's probably a little bit of me in all of the characters somewhere. Um, but I also always love writing the characters who are least like myself. Yeah. Um, so I loved writing Kennedy. <laughs> I loved 
kind of getting to imagine, you know, myself as some, you know, rich aspiring actor. Um, right. So, so that was, that was really fun to think about how she moves through the world, the confidence and the boldness and mm. the entitlement that too. Uh, so that, that was fun to think about. Um, and I think also uh, there's a, a bounty hunter character in the book named early who is this kind of, uh, I don't know, grizzled man um, who is also just sort of full of feelings. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and I had a lot of fun embodying him too, because he feels so much, but he can't say any of it. You know, he can't bring himself really to express any of it. And I think that those are also characters that are really fun to write. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that Kennedy is definitely a character that is not more, perhaps more unexpected in the way she turns up and, and who she is. And I think watching her deal... So, essentially, you know, she, you know, in her process of, you know, finding out the history of her family, she, you know, does end up, spoiler, finding out about <laughs> her heritage. Um, and then she notes... And, you know, Jude expects her to react differently. But then Kenny says to herself... Kennedy notes to herself, you know, how little it seems to change for her. You know, she says how switching out one brick doesn't change what a building is. Um, and I think that was a really interesting way to see her react. And I kind of wanted to see if, you know, you could speak a bit on kind of what you think you want to say about identity as a theme and kind of what constitutes it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really the, entirely like the biggest question I wanted to ask. Um, you know, what is it that makes us who we are? Um, I've always been really interested um, when you read these stories about people who have done DNA tests to find out their racial backgrounds. Yeah. It turns out to be something very different than what they thought. Mm. Um, you know, there was one woman I was reading about who had, you know, grown up in a black neighborhood, went to a black university, joined all these black organizations and found out that she was not black. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like there are and then and then in the article, it was like, does this change anything for you? And she was like, no. Yeah, um, because she had lived her life as a black woman, had been socialized as a black woman, had like been immersed. She was adopted, so she didn't know um, her biological parents, but she had been immersed in this culture, in this world. So it didn't change anything for her, you know? Yeah. So I think that you have those those um, and then the kind of flip side of it is often you have these. Um, these, you know, white nationalists who find out that they're not as white as they thought they were (laughs) and, you know, kind of spin out in a tailspin and are having these like identity crises because their whole ideology has been built around their supposed, you know, uh, pure whiteness. And they find out that that's not the case. So, so I find that those kind of stories from the news, I find those so interesting um, in thinking about how we, how we are, you know, how we formate our own identity. Is it, how you see yourself? Is it how other people see you? Is it how your family sees you? Um, you know, is it how you move through the world? There are so many aspects of these, of these, you know, all of these things come together in a lot of different and complex ways for all of us. Mm -hmm. So for me with Kennedy, I was, I was really interested to think like what will happen if she is presented with information about herself that she did not expect, is this going to, you know, make her go down this kind of identity crisis? Is she going to be able to just brush it off? You know, and I, and I think that she's altered by that information. I don't think that she's the same. Yeah. Um, but I also don't think that she would like identify as black or, you know, or mm-hmm. would, would yeah. sort of publicly, you know, because I think that she was not socialized as black. She never thought of herself as black. That's a different um, experience. And that's like, you know, I think for her, it would be a hard kind of switch to flip at that point in her life to think of herself in this completely different way. Um, but for, but for me, that's what I found so interesting is that question of, you know, what is it that makes you who you are? And if you 
discover something like this about yourself late in life? Does it change everything or does it change nothing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and the question of, of identity um, is also comes up in, in the character of Reese, um, who is trans, but mostly hides that from um, the, the people around him, aside from those he's really close to. Um, he was a really fascinating character, um, and as was his relationship with Jude. Um, we wondered, uh, what, was it particularly important to you to represent the intersectionality of discrimination um, and what you wanted to kind of look at in terms of Reese's character? Yeah, I mean, I think Reese is one of my favorite characters in the book. And mm. I think mm. that Reese and Jude's relationship, I always kind of thought of as like the romantic center of the book. Like, I think that that's the yeah. story. <laughs> I'm glad you guys agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I wanted, I think I, I really wanted Jude to have this love story. I, she goes through so much hardship when she's growing up. So I really wanted her to, to, I mean, I'm saying this as if like, I feel like I'm talking like I'm her friend and I wanted to like set her up on a date or something. Yeah, yeah. That's how I felt. Like I wanted her to have this, you know, meet somebody special and have this big love story. Um, mm. So that was kind of what led me to the two of them. And, you know, I think that Reese became really interesting to me when I was thinking about him because he, in a lot of ways, I think serves as a counterpoint to Stella. I think his journey is very opposite from hers. Um, you know, they both are characters who reinvent themselves in these big ways. Um, but you know, uh, you know, Reese changes physically, but it affirms who he is and it affirms who he's always been. Um, Mm. Stella does not change physically. She doesn't even go by a different name and, uh, and yet mentally and emotionally, she becomes this completely different person. Yeah. So I, I liked those characters' intention with each other and contrast with each other. Um, when you think about the fact that change is something that's complicated and it can look in, uh, it can look different than how uh, we might automatically assume that it presents itself, um, this, this idea of change. Yeah. Um, so that was one thing that was interesting to me. And I think beyond that, I just, I just became really interested in this love story between Jude and Reese, because I think that they're both these characters who, again, have been through a lot growing up in the places where they grew up. Um, they both experienced this violence, uh, and they both experienced a lot of shame um, surrounding their bodies. Uh, so for me, the idea of seeing those two people try to find love with each other and try to push past their own you know, struggles with intimacy and with trust, that became something that was um, just moving to me um, to think about, you know, to try to imagine a, a path forward for the two of them and thinking about how much that they, they have to overcome in order to allow themselves to love and to be loved. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think our, our, our group, yeah, is definitely, I think, underline, um, yeah. <laughs> underline, I, yeah, underline our kind of love for, for Reese and Jude. Um, I think another interesting thing, you know, we see Reese and Jude kind of like find peace in their relationship, but for others, you know, this endless performing becomes, you know, endless performing is a huge theme of the novel. And for some of your characters, it becomes all they know. Um, you know, I mean, with Stella, for example, it means her endless performing means that she doesn't actually get to perhaps really reconcile or, or confront the things that, you know, she's found hard all of her life. Um, and then equally, Kennedy seeks to become invisible for a while through her acting and she expresses how that makes her feel. Um, what do you think, like, this theme of, like, performance and invisibility kind of, you, what what was the significance of it in the novel for you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there are a lot of uh, sort of thematic surrounding performance, um, you know, this, this idea that performing identity can can be really liberating and it can be freeing and creative and playful 
Um, and I think that that's some of what you see um, with Jude's sort of friends that she makes in LA who are most of whom are drag queens. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and there's a way in which within that community, she sees performance as this type of play and, 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 uh, and liberation and creativity. Um, but on the flip side of that, as you were saying, there's also this idea of performance as something um, that can be exhausting. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, Stella is continually performing, um, that she never quite finds a way to rest, that she's always worried about sort of being hunted and being discovered and being exposed. Um, So, you know, I think that performance uh, pops up in a lot of different ways. There's, you know, lots of kind of acting figures in 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 the book, like Kennedy, as you pointed out. Um, who also mm-hmm. finds performing liberating, but does not realize the degree to which she has been sort of unknowingly performing throughout her life. Yeah. Um, so there's that there, there's that aspect of it, um, but but I think that's what I was mostly drawn to the complexity of the performance itself, and that performing can liberate us to to try new identities and to become new people in this way that feels really generative and freeing, but it can also kind of almost handcuff us um, in a way. Yeah. And and on that on that note as well, I feel like forgetting is is another theme of the book. Um, that you know, there's willful forgetting in in the story, but there's also, um, without giving anything away, there's a, a character who does succumb to Alzheimer's um, and obviously is is forgetting things uh, without having any control over that. Mm. Um, and we wondered whether you could speak a bit about that theme as well and and the different um, facets of it that crop up in the in the story yeah that's that's a really good question um yeah you know I don't know I think there's there's one aspect I think that I was interested in kind of this this idea of national forgetting Mm, yeah yeah (laughs) and I think that that's definitely a problem that that plagues um the U.S. um you know it's in a way like there are some things and you know that that we hold on to and enshrine in public memory. And there are other things that we willfully forget as a country. Um, So I think there, there was kind of that aspect that I was interested in. Um, And I think that that felt really, it felt interesting to me, I think writing this book in this moment, because this is a moment, um, you know, the sort of Trump rise to power is a moment in which the, the country was just looking to the past in this, this really disturbing way, you know, this make America great again sort of idea it was all just backward looking, backward mm, looking mm-hmm. and, and not only looking backward, but looking towards like this idealized past that yeah, never yeah. actually existed, you know? So I think writing towards that kind of memory and forgetting motif was a way of, of, of thinking about a different, you know, a different version of, 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 of America. You know, this book takes place, um, you know, during some of the years in which uh, America was supposedly so great. Um, So I think that that was one way for me to kind of, uh, kind of enter that, that national um, conversation. Um, But I, but I think beyond that also more personally thinking about um, this idea of trauma and how trauma lingers and is, can be intergenerational, can be something that we pass on to others. uh, And, you know, these characters are, are, most of them are all dealing with some trauma in some way, if not all of them, I think. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, and, and, and there can be ways in which, um, you know, sometimes it feels like for the case of early, it's easier for him at the beginning of the book to just forget and to kind of push everything down and push everything down and not deal with anything. Um, But I think other characters learn other ways to, to try to cope with these, 
um, traumatic histories that allow you to actually move forward instead of being kind of held prisoner um, to the memory. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely thought that the kind of, recon well, there's some reconciliation in the end of the novel, obviously not all reconciliation, but I think definitely seeing that at the end shows you, yeah, how some ways how trauma doesn't leave, but also how trauma can be not, trauma can be sort of moved for, more moved past, um, I guess. Um, and equally, um, writing the, the Vanishing Half, uh, were there any novels that you drew inspiration from for The Vanishing Half or you feel kind of a, like thematically connected or have a relationship with? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so hard to say because I think a lot of these books become really foundational to you in some way. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think about something like The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, um, which was the first Toni Morrison novel I ever read. Yeah. Um, so that feels kind of foundational to myself just as a, human yeah. um, and also as a writer <laughs> yeah um so I think about a book like that I think about Nella Larson's passing which I, I mentioned a little bit earlier yeah um, which is a book that I read later I read it in college um but also was just this book about this complicated relationship between these two women one who has passed and one who hasn't um and the sort of tormented friendship that they enter <laughs> um and uh it's it's like a you know really nuanced and also uh, just you know, in continually relevant mm. book um, about the complications of identity and also community. Like yeah. what, what is the loyalty that, that we have to each other as members of the same community? And do I still have loyalty towards that person if she's chosen to leave the community? Um, so, so yeah, I think about that book as really being uh, foundational and um, it's a film, but I think about also imitation of life, um, which I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was a, a film I saw when I was, pretty young and my mom uh, showed it to me I remember and it was the first thing I think I ever saw about passing and I didn't really understand at the time I just didn't understand why somebody would do that you know I was just like but why doesn't she want to be black yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's you know I think that's that's good that I thought that you know it's like it's that's um that's I think a testament to my parents raising me in an environment um, where I was taught to love myself, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's good, but mm -hmm. also you know I think about that. That is, um, you know, such a striking I think kind of uh, American story about this you know woman who disavows her own mother to to attain um, whiteness, and she also doesn't do it. I think it's similar to Stella in a sense because she doesn't she doesn't become like rich and famous through doing this. Um, she. Or maybe dissimilar to Stella in that way. I'm sorry, uh, because yeah, she doesn't. You know, in the uh, I think in the movie she becomes like a like a you know she's maybe like a showgirl or something. Like you know she's not. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. not like she marries super rich and she's living in this huge house in the hills. It's just like she wants to get away. You know, she wants to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She wants to divorce herself from from um, this this household in which they were living, where she was constantly made to feel you know inferior so yeah. so yeah so those are just three texts that I think were, were foundational to me um in thinking about this book and and in, in writing this book yeah cool yeah and so The Vanishing Half uh, was published at the beginning of June um it's received uh, loads of great reviews and there's a lot of buzz about the book as well we wondered what the experience has been like for you um and and how it's compared to the publishing of your debut novel The Mothers a, a couple of years ago yeah, it feels um, it feels a lot crazier than that. Yeah. Um, it's mm. it's weird because um, so I'm I'm in New York and we're still 
pretty much on lockdown. We've, yeah. we've yeah. entered phase one of the reopening, which, you know, it's like construction or something. Like it doesn't really affect your everyday life for the average person. So, yeah. so I've just mm-hmm. been in my apartment, you know, as I've been since March. Um, so nothing in like my physical world has really changed. Um, but at the same time, it feels like this book is having like its own life out in the world. Um, and you know, that's been really fun and nice to see of people posting pictures of the book and all the various places where they live or tagging me and things, um, or seeing reviews, all of that has been really exciting. Um, but also very surreal again, because I'm still, you know, in my apartment looking out the same window. (laughs) So, so it's been extremely surreal, but it feels like the enthusiasm is, is honestly like nothing I I could have ever expected or predicted. Um, and like nothing I've ever experienced before. So that's been really, um, comforting and and has given me some some hope through uh <laughs> through these months of quarantine to see that people are mm. responding um so uh enthusiastically and so lovingly towards this book yeah yeah absolutely yeah that doesn't surprise me at all really <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah I think there's just there's so much to say about it isn't there but um, that that's the end of our our questions um for you thank you so much for talking to us um, cool Well, thank you so much to Britt for coming on the show and talking to us. I think I I always say this after every time we interview somebody, but there's nothing better than talking to the actual iterator, whatever we're discussing that week, because there's no better insight. Yeah, I mean, it's always so fascinating to hear about an author's process. Being able to hear all those answers from Britt was amazing. So, yeah, we just want to thank her again for coming on the podcast and, uh, yeah, urge everybody to go and read this book in whatever whatever format suits you at the moment whether that's the audiobook or the kindle or getting the beautiful hardback copy as well mm. um but yeah so we're going to try and now talk about the book without giving too much away just to start us off helena um what were your expectations going into this novel like did you know much about it beyond uh, mm. obviously what we we knew from the synopsis on the blurb and 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 maybe a few things you'd read about it yeah not so much um i generally try and avoid uh reviews before mm. i read or watch something um because again i'm very malleable i think sometimes or impressionable in that um if i know somebody reacted in a certain way to a book or a or a film or whatever it does color the way i think about it so i try and go in completely blind but i think certainly i'd you know I was interested from the beginning. So it's not a spoiler to say uh, it's on the blurb that Mallard, the town in which this is set, is a place which I thought was a really interesting setting. So Mallard, as as Britt has said, um, is a place where this um, a, a, a black community really um, has, you know, deliberately be- tried to become light skinned. Um, for you know various reasons I'm sure which would be individual to anybody who lived in such a community Um, and then and and I was like okay so she's trying to explore colorism that was really interesting but then I was kind of like I just don't I didn't completely understand I suppose the impetus to create a town like this because I was like would a town like this really exist it feels a bit like I don't know, Colson Whiteheady I suppose so Colson Whitehead does this like magical realism style writing exploring whatever issues he's exploring like the uh, underground railroad right like he makes this slave owned or slaved operate ex-slave operated railroad that helps to that you know in history was said to have existed to try and help escape slaves escape to the north he made that into like a 
like a proper like a thing but a thing that had its own like powers and magic about it so I kind of thought that like is she doing that but then as she said in the podcast it an interview it turned out that a town like this may have existed in the past anyway so I think perhaps the town of Mallard I was intrigued by and I didn't really understand how it would work or what she was trying to do with it but then it became increasingly clear as I read this is more of a drama uh, a, a, a drama through time a family drama that deals with social issues in a very like kind of observant and interesting way it's not sort of like trying to like create a mythical town where like everybody is black but looks white it's a lot more complex and well and thought out than that so definitely I was going into it thinking I wasn't I had I didn't really uh, I wasn't sure how she was going to do it but then now having finished it I'm like I exactly see what she was trying to do and it was so well handled and the topics were really deftly dealt with and I felt I felt very sort of like I don't know throughout the whole book I definitely felt very much like whoever wrote it knew exactly what they were doing and I think that's really nice thing to feel sometimes you read a book and you're like I saw what they were trying to do but they lost their way halfway through and then they sort of like finished it off and one of the main reasons anyone's reading it is because it's an interesting concept but this book The Vanishing Half definitely goes beyond that like Mallard as a concept and as a town and as a setting is draws you in but it's Brit's deft handling of the plot and of the characters that I think really shone through and made what I thought was quite a unique concept, I suppose, work. Because definitely, like, I'm sure you'll agree with me, like, there's a lot of surprising twists and turns in this book, aren't there? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Mallard as a setting retreats to the background yeah. um, fairly quickly in the novel, um, but it's always omnipresent in their minds, yeah. which I think is really interesting too in terms of, like, um later on in the book as you get more into like the 80s and 90s they talk about how the town which was already no longer on it was never on the map to begin with but it it sort of is really almost written out of existence yeah um so it, it's a very interesting setting but it's um the book also encompasses LA and um moves into New York and, and like different settings kind of form a backdrop but the characters having come from this place and having grown up in this um very strange environment is a building block to the rest of their lives yeah. and obviously the idea is that Desiree and Stella move in two completely direct different directions having started off in the same at the same point um which is obviously the the premise for the novel and then Brit follows the the two these two women um and how they live their lives and their descendants um as you say there's there are lots of twists and turns and there are um different characters who crop up whose lives intersect with them um and there are, I remember at the beginning thinking it would probably just concentrate at least for a, a while on Desiree and Stella yeah yeah the book does but it does also you you always see the consequences of every character's action and you see those consequences in the way their children behave in the way um their lives pan out which is really fascinating and I think for me and and, and you and, and so many readers that's like one of the things you love about a book when you can kind of just completely sink into it and sink into the world and yeah. see how people's lives play out in this in this particular series of events yeah yeah I completely agree and I think 
it's when those events feel under the control of the author rather than those events wrangling the author through the book um it certainly is really satisfying and I think that's something else to say about the book as well like certainly it doesn't go where you expect but I think I personally came out of it feeling very satisfied and it works very well as a whole and I also think I'm sure you'll agree as well that the characters themselves are really really interesting particularly the the daughters I mean Brit says again like this daughter so Estella has a daughter named Kennedy Kennedy doesn't know her heritage and Kennedy she said crept up on her didn't she that like this kind of happy white girl who didn't have any problems well problems with race I suppose in her life but instead has a sort of like privileged upbringing but still has issues um I feel like that's a character you see a lot but you don't always you aren't always encouraged to understand or to think a lot about their lives and I think again like the way Kennedy is written is makes her really interesting and makes her very 3D and like very um very well defined and deep um but yeah I definitely think that like the characters are a real strong point of the book as much as the uh the plot as uh, the plot is as well <laughs> yeah for sure and and I think um you know sometimes you read a book which has lots of different characters in and you very much feel that you prefer reading one of the characters oh, yeah. point of views than the other um and I think in this book it's very interesting whether you're in Desiree's head whether you're in Early's head her her um partner yeah whether you're in Kennedy's head as you say or Jude and I think that the interactions with Kennedy and Jude Jude being um Desiree's daughter instead and obviously Kennedy being Stella's daughter um they interact as young women and then um <laughs> again I've tried not to spoil this um <laughs> they they interact as young women and that has important after effects for both of them um but sometimes you see Kennedy through Jude's eyes and sometimes you see Jude through Kennedy's eyes yeah which really adds to that feeling of kind of people maybe not always being what they seem mm. people having multiple layers deception um yeah the, the idea of performance and the idea of performance we talked about this in the interview it obviously is a bit of a theme because Kennedy is a an she wants to be an actress um yeah. later on she kind of ends up using that skill of, of performing to sell houses um yes and there's a sort of interesting interesting theme there so yeah I, th I think that the, the narrative style is is incredibly strong and works really well in allowing you to see different characters through different people's eyes which sort of underlines some of the themes of the book so yeah I completely agree all the characters I was interested in yeah so I definitely think that overall this book is going to be one a, a perfect candidate I think for the uh the GCSE and A level English lit reading lists just in terms of the multi I, we had I had such a great time listening to Brit kind of discuss the layers of the book and you know really again give validation to the idea that like all of these questionings and these sort of like examinings of themes like isolation um lying performativity colorism race gender I think it's all packed in there so certainly definitely if you want to have a book which asks you to question these all these various themes and gives you the opportunity to do it through examination of characters yeah I definitely recommend this book for that as well I can't wait to sort of like give it a read again I think in time yeah for sure and I think um your point about how it would work well on the school syllabus I think it would be incredible if like this was on the school yeah. syllabus because it spans a, a chunk of modern American history like it starts off at, 
um, in like the 1960s and touches on the 1968 protests in the US, um, the civil rights protests, yeah. and then ends up in kind of like the 80s, 90s. Um, and so you kind of see how American society changes in that period, but also in some ways doesn't change. And as we all know, hasn't changed necessarily today. There have also been discussions recently um, in light of the Black Lives Matter movement gaining this incredible momentum over the past few weeks about the importance of school syllabuses being diverse and being as diverse as possible. And in the UK, discussing decolonisation, um, there are campaigns that are striving to make that happen. In our episode last week, we spotlighted books that highlight the black experience, um, books that we highly recommend, including Small Island by Andrea Levy, um, which, uh, as a side note, the amazing National Theatre production, which adapts the book, is actually going to be broadcast as part of the National Theatre Live this week. I saw the show last year and absolutely loved it and really recommend checking that out if you can. But yes, there's been a lot of discussion about anti-racist reading and Brit's book, which obviously reflects on racism, discrimination and its effects, has been published at a time that feels particularly timely um, and comes also at a moment where publishing is experiencing something of a reckoning. But also the idea of the anti-racist reading list has come under scrutiny. Um, Everybody wants people to be reading these books because they're great books, not simply because there's this idea they could educate you. Um, although, of course, education yourself is important and books can be a great way of learning about aspects of the world that you've perhaps not really known about before. I mean, Helena, you pointed out that The Vanishing Half actually introduced you to the idea of passing as a concept. But Brit has done some great interviews over the past few weeks where she's also touched on these ideas, um, including an interview with Vulture, in which she said about the book, it's not something I wrote to teach people anything, but even considering that, I know there's been a rush of support for this book because of the conversations that are happening right now about how it's important to read black people and to read about black people. And I think that's good. But I also think you should read fiction by black people because these books are good and not because these books will teach you how to be a better person. Which yeah, I just think is an interesting idea to reflect on, particularly right now. I totally agree. I think that, you know, a curriculums and reading lists could certainly be um, certainly be strengthened by adding a book, a book like this. So there is also our uh, cry to add more books of this kind to various uh, intellectual university school reading lists. Um, all of you go out there add your reading lists and read about what race and gender does in modern society. Thank you again so much to Brit. To, for coming on. Um, again, as we said, you can buy the book in audiobook, ebook, and of course the beautiful hardback, which we both cherish. And yeah, we're going to move on now to our things of the bye month. <laughs> yes, <laughs> our favourite section of the podcast, aside from so the interviews, very, of course. Very aptly named segment. Yeah. <laughs> So it's time for Blank of the Bi-Month. I think this week it's a book. So it's a book of the Bi-Month um, or maybe a concept of the Bi-Month, really. Yeah, so I guess more of a concept. Yeah, yeah. you go ahead and explain. Yeah, so essentially um, we were having a chat um, 
earlier today. Fun fact, we managed to get in some socially distanced in-person chatting for the first time during lockdown, which has been, which was really nice. And we were chatting, we've been kind of interested recently in lockdown, not lit, but lockdown sort of like culture, I suppose, in that everyone, I think I've seen quite a few people kind of wondering like what kind of plays or music or... um books will come out of lockdown and some people have certainly said to me they don't want to see one lockdown drama (laughs) they don't want to see one show that's dramatizing the lockdown because it was too real for the rest of us anyway so um that's an interesting point to make and we can come back to that but um I was kind of inspired to think more about this because I've actually been reading uh Mrs Dalloway by Virginia Woolf um and I wasn't reading I've been reading it for a while because Virginia Woolf I find her quite difficult to read for various reasons, but not to not doesn't in no way would I critique the quality of her writing. I suppose it's more how she writes that it takes me a while to get into it. But Mrs. Dalloway, for those of you who don't know, was published originally in 1925, so post World War One, and it basically it's set actually in 1923, five years after World War One, and really in Mrs. Dalloway. Virginia Woolf is trying to deal with the impact of World War One on on kind of London society, I might say, not British so much because it's very much set in London, dealing with Londoners. And it follows mainly this woman, Clarissa Dalloway, who is the wife of an MP who is throwing a party that evening. And it goes through her day organising this party. And also through the day, she meets various people from her past and her present. And she ruminates and thinks about the decisions and the twists and turns of her life that took her to you know throwing this party post world war one with the wife of an mp and what her life has kind of become what it's like and you also see snippets of life from other people around london so there's a man who has shell shock who's come back from the war he has ptsd um, there is uh, one of Clarissa's old paramours and he lives in india and it's kind of a rumination as well about like India and England and how his role is there and I think what's really interesting about Mrs Dalloway is it actually it did come out and was inspired by post you know it's you know World War One was a traumatic time for the world and for more specifically British society and so it it's it doesn't come out of a pandemic specifically but it comes out of a similar time of fear and anxiety and social upheaval and I think Thinking about, you know, what other kinds of literature or kind of works of art or whatever or culture could come out of a time like this. I think Mrs. Dalloway is a really interesting one to consider as part of that genre because it's about trauma and the impacts of trauma, not just individually, but on like a social scale. And so I've been reading it with kind of that in mind. And I do think it's very interesting how much her characters ruminate on like how much they ruminate on their lives, perhaps more than they might have pre the traumatic experience of, of World War One of war, and um, and how much how much gloom and not just gloom but like how much like sadness and sort of like despondency accompanies you know they see you know there's there's a scene where some soldiers march along the mall and and the old soldier who now has shell shock kind of watches them uh, and considers kind of how strong and motivated they all are and how despondent he feels. Um, and I think that like Virginia Woolf is really trying to tackle that despondency, you know, and how much people's lives have changed and and things like that. So, yeah. And I just wonder, like, if you've read Mrs. Dalloway, which I, I know you have, like, if you picked up on that and like also what your thoughts are about like 
literature reflecting kind of times of trauma and how those two interlink? Yeah, I think it's a, a really interesting thought and, and this would be a, a, a really interesting time to read or reread um, Mrs. Dalloway, uh, which, yeah, I, I read a few years ago um, and actually studied at uni. Mm. Uh, so this was, you know, the kind of thing that we would sometimes write essays about. But I think you do see it through a whole different light when, when you're kind of obviously not living that exact experience by any means. But the idea of a sort of collective society, how do you even say that societal societal yeah Yeah. a collective societal trauma yeah um is an interesting one in terms of literature because one thing I remember in my studies that that people would say was that it often doesn't the the um literature or or pop culture in response to the trauma doesn't necessarily come to the fore straight away yeah like and actually you often need maybe a few years for people to process their thoughts before they can kind of put them pen to paper so in the mid-20s there was a whole spate of plays and um books that were about the experience of people in the trenches but they didn't come out in like uh, maybe some did but majority came out in the mid-20s as opposed to kind of the late 19 19 but what would that be called? 19 teens? No. 19. Like, you know what I mean? 19s, <laughs> yeah. Um, which is which is really interesting because I can imagine that like when something's over, I mean, obviously we're very lucky we've never lived through yeah. a war like that or mm-hmm. anything, but um, I can imagine that in, in terms of the COVID pandemic, when things are, and I hasten to say back to normal because I know that, that we probably will never t- return to the same kind of normal that we had. But I think even now we're seeing like, people would rather kind of look forward than like reflect back too much um, in terms of maybe like their emotional state, if mm. that makes sense. Uh, I think mm-hmm. hopefully people will look back in terms of thinking about how decisions should be made for the future. But yeah, it's more about kind of like forward thinking because I think that's how people cope with these sorts of situations. So all of that said, um, I think it's really interesting to think about the process of Mrs. Dalloway coming together and the different characters in the book obviously ha- are dealing with the emotional impact of the war very yeah. differently. A lot mm. of them never, my recollection anyway, is that they never really even mentioned the war. Like, yeah, it's it's more of a kind of like um, cloud hanging over yeah. London, but it's it's not ever necessarily reached by anyone. And and even those who are feeling mu- feeling the real impact of it, like Septimus Smith, the guy you mentioned, the soldier. Yeah he's the only person who perhaps talks about it directly but but yeah it's interesting because from just a personal perspective of like someone who's reading books and and watching things during this time I quite enjoying reading and consuming things that don't really deal with well obviously don't deal with the pandemic because and that's partly just like because there isn't really much out there at the moment that is dealing with it obviously there are lots of pieces of work that people are publishing online and things as we as we're living it um but even that I find myself sort of turning away from a little bit mm-hmm. um so I don't know I mean so just to kind of quickly highlight something that I did see this week um the author Zadie Smith is actually producing a series of essays written during lockdown yeah. um titled Imitations mm. um which is going to be published in a in a book this summer um it's coming out in July. So, I mean, that's amazing. Like, literally, she's written this over the past few months and yeah. it's about to be published. It's mm. crazy. Um, but apparently, um, this is from the bookseller. I'm just reading this synopsis. It, um, it's 
said to explore ideas and questions prompted by unprecedented situations. What does it mean to submit to a new reality or to resist it? How do we compare relative sufferings? What is the relationship between time and work? In our isolation, what do other people mean to us? How do we think about them? What is the ratio of contempt to compassion in a crisis? When an unfamiliar world arrives, what it does it reveal about the world that came before it? Ooh. Which is super interesting because I feel like you could almost say that like something like Mrs. Dalloway could have that as its synopsis. Yeah, um, yeah. The idea of like coming out of the gloom of an unprecedented situation, whether that was like the trauma of the First World War um, or or like something like this, like a, a pandemic. It's, it's, it's so interesting to think like the idea of a new reality, like a lot about in Mrs. Dalloway, there's like, you know, the first line isn't something like she didn't know whether she should get flowers or what was the first line? It's something like that. Um, Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. Yeah. Oh, look at that. I, I know my English lit. Yeah, you do. <laughs> no, but like, so, but point being that that's like such a kind of like, um, it's, it's such a minute detail. It's yeah. not, it's like the mundane every day, like she's going to buy flowers. I mean, obviously it does speak to her being of a privileged position where she can go and buy flowers just yeah. you know, off, her, off the bat. But yeah, yeah. it also speaks to like, she's able to concentrate on something like that rather than think about the war. Um, yeah. And I think that look, all those lines are kind of can be read in a very different way mm-hmm. in that book versus if they have been written under a different set of circumstances. So yeah. I wonder if going forward when we're reading books that are set in the aftermath or during this time whether there will be a feeling of kind of I don't know of an added extra layer to events or whether authors and essayists will kind of try and focus on because obviously there are so many other topics yeah. that whilst they might might be touched upon by the, the events that we've experienced are also quite separate from them you know yeah I, I don't do. know it's hard to know it is and I think obviously we can look at Mrs Dalloway now with this hindsight of what oh, Virginia Woolf was writing post-World War One, so we can assume that you know again like the questioning even like she questions more than just you know trauma she questions like female roles and mental health and mental illness and you know uh, and you know Mrs Dalloway or Clarissa kind of looks back on relationship with a woman which could be seen as you know um, bisexual her bisexuality as well so I think like the fact that like Virginia Woolf was even questioning all these things in the book we could even see as connected with World War One that people didn't question things and then they went through something traumatic and then began to question things in a way they didn't before so I think that's also an interesting thing that we could look out for in books and media and whatever going ahead it's like are there more issues engaged with or are there different questions being asked than were before or are there not again I think that like expecting great change to come out of this is probably quite um over over enthusiastic perhaps (laughs) yeah and also of course in terms of just like purely logistically like that when I was reading earlier about the the Zadie Smith book it's really interesting that that's clearly been like fast-tracked yeah I mean that that sounds like so interesting I I would definitely read that I think so many people would be really keen to read that read her series of essays um but there'll also be a whole bunch of other books coming out this summer including non-fiction and essays and ruminations on modern life Mm. that will have no mention of COVID-19 at all because they were written before and will we kind of reject those and be less interested in them? Or will we actually be like, oh, this is still interesting to read about like celebrity culture or, or whatever it is, because, you know, those 
it's not like well, I mean everything has kind of been transformed but also we're probably all craving the normality and mm-hmm. yeah I don't know it's an interesting question that I think we, we probably obviously we're not going to have the answer to it anytime soon um and there's so many different kinds of if, if you think about how like there are tropes in literature mm-hmm. right so like if we use like a the example of like a high school movie like the high school movie has the tropes that we all recognize whether yeah. that's like the mm-hmm. you know the jock going out with the geeky girl or whatever it is um there's a lot of those sort of tropes in pop culture is so ingrained that to see like covid infiltrating them would be kind of a little hard to imagine like yeah. do you know what i mean yeah i know what you mean completely yeah yeah um but, but- i actually um Sorry, I was just going to say that yeah, I think um, I have I have seen online um, people saying that they're like turning to Mrs. Dalloway at this time. Um, because the other thing that we didn't mention earlier is that as well as being set in the aftermath of um, of the First World War, the book is also set in the aftermath of the Spanish flu. Oh, yes, of um, course. Which was the last big global pandemic, um, which killed, I think, millions of people. Yeah, um, yeah. But which... I would say I've not come across a lot in in books or no and you I know, suppose like, you think it would be something that would crop up all over yeah. the place but actually yeah. I would not say it has at least for my reading which mm. of course doesn't span every book yeah by any means. well also as a historian I don't really think that like the trauma of world war one is something that everybody kind of like acknowledges the evidence of right like we always put you know, the trauma of World War One or the experience of World War One as pushing forward social change, like women's rights and things like that. But actually, we don't... I don't, I'm not sure if a lot of work or thought has been put into the added layer of the Spanish flu. Um, perhaps because there... I don't know how much evidence or analysis there is of the impact of Spanish flu on communities beyond just the fact that we know it happened. Like... And perhaps that might start adding a new layer to analysis of historical works or of trends or behaviours or of, you know, English literature works as well or literature works beyond just English, of course. How much of it can we actually start to analyse from the perspective of trauma because of a global pandemic? I don't know. And perhaps we'll be able to have that perspective now. Um, Perhaps not. I'll be, be interesting to see, I think. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll, like... I think there'll be more of an interest mm-hmm. from us as readers to read books that, whether that be fiction or nonfiction, that explore like the Spanish plague, or sorry, the Spanish flu or the the plague. Um, and I found it quite interesting when I was reading Hamnet's Maggie O'Farrell's book, um, mm. which was um, we were talked about in a few podcasts ago, um, because there was a lot of mention. Uh, of of the plague mm. and of how you know the theatres would just be closed for months at a time mm-hmm. for the plague and then they would reopen again and that everybody was just kind of living with the reality of the plague and we actually had a really interesting chat didn't we about with um Gavandra Hodge who was one of our um previous guests um on, on this topic too um so it's interesting to think about how like a few years ago or sorry, a few years ago a lot a few months ago I would have been like oh that's I can't even imagine how it would feel to mm. live with the omnipresent threat of a disease that yeah. you could get and could spread around your community whereas now I'm like that is actually my lived reality it's your lived reality it's the world's lived reality and so I think we'll be much more interested in looking back at how previous generations coped with that lived reality whereas before I think for us living in the UK we would see that as like quite alien to yeah. our to our current realities. 
So I'm actually also, I, I, I found um, apparently there has been some work. Um, so there was a New Yorker article that came out on April the 10th this year mm -hmm. um, that was called Why Anxious Readers Under Quarantine Turn to Mrs. Dalloway. Ooh. And the book, the um, essay references a book called Viral Modernism, The Influenza Pandemic and Interwar Literature. Yeah. Which sounds really interesting. And it, and it says that um, in, this, in this book, the um the author elizabeth outker she yeah. suggests that clarissa mrs dalloway might have had the flu and be recovering um ah. and that she sort of picked up on a few um specific moments that refer to that so yeah it actually sounds really interesting i might have to read that um yeah but yeah it's a it's a it's an interesting topic and i, I think if any of our listeners have any books that they'd recommend on Along these lines, um, whether that be books set um, in the past or, or books that are looking, mm. maybe maybe other new releases that might be looking at our current situation, mm. or uh, we'd, we'd definitely love to hear about those, wouldn't we? Yeah, we would. Um, and, of course, you can connect with us on Twitter, which is at RealLLW. You can, can connect, with us on, connect with us on Instagram, Love's Labour's Watched, and you can also email us if you feel like it. It's all loveslabourswatched at gmail.com. We love to hear your comments. We love to hear your feedback. And I'm going to say, before I launch into our usual ending spiel, now there is one book that deals with the impact of the Spanish flu, and that is Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, but Jossie, you, I mean, you had that one. You got it, you saw that one coming, didn't you? I did. I did. I was like, yeah, is she going to say something really serious? Oh no, no, I know she's going to say. Could be Twilight. The thing is, like, I mean, I bet for a lot of people that was their first hearing about the Spanish flu was, yeah. was through Twilight. I mean, I think Stephanie Mayer could, you know, why she hasn't written an essay explaining why she chose Edward to be the victim of the Spanish flu as opposed to anything else. I don't know why she has not yet revealed that, but yeah. perhaps that's coming along with Zadie Smith's <laughs> book. Well, we wait with bated breath, but um, with that, um, that is us coming to the end of the show for this week. Um, as always, um, there is extra stuff out there that if you want well the extra stuff out there for you if you want to kind of connect with us more there's our social medias of course as i mentioned and there's also our patreon so we run a patreon um we have um basically as i said patreon is just a way for us to get a bit of extra support and grow the show you know we could always do with better equipment we can always do with more resources so um the patreon is out there to kind of generate that for us if possible um the show will always be free on spotify and on itunes in full but the patreon is just there for us to post some extra bonus things for our supporters so um at the minute we've got a whole bunch of extra content including full interviews from people that we've talked to some little extra discussions with our friends um and some little extra discussions between us as well so please do do, if you're interested go and sign up there um, we have two tiers we have a five pound tier which gets you access to all our bonus content and ten pound tier which gets you access to our bonus content plus some more kind of interaction with us that we will do for those patrons there we are um, patreon.com slash loves labors watch so please do check us out there but with all that said thanks for listening um, and we will be around in a few weeks with more of the show uh, yeah yeah, we'll check in with you then. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.